Well, hey everyone, and welcome to the Christian Life Center. We are so glad that you are joining us today. If we haven't met, my name is Ben, and thank you so much for coming here. Uh, I want to say Happy New Year, Happy 2022. We are so glad that you were in the building. Uh, today, you may have already heard, this looks a little bit different than what we were planning and what we were going for. Um, earlier this week, I was actually able to spend some time with my family, but I did find out yesterday afternoon, about midday, uh, that my my uh, one of my family members was positive for COVID. So that threw a wrench into everything. Um, I started to get feel not so well on Thursday night, so I haven't been able to be tested yet. So here we are. So brand new year 2022. This might be a little bit awkward for you. Um, it's very much awkward for me because I'm about to preach to my laptop and hopefully uh, it's not super awkward. There is a good chance that you are going to see my dogs running around. I just bribed them with a bone. Uh, so maybe they won't actually come on over, but I, I don't think that'll be the case. If they start barking, um, it, again, it's going to be a little bit awkward, but hopefully it's also for the glory of God. So today I want to share with you as we start kind of a brand new series, um, as we dive into 2022, I do want to say uh, congratulations for making it through 2021. It was about this time last year that I remember being able to share with you, and I felt like I needed to congratulate you through making it for making it through 2020. Well, 2021 felt kind of the same way. There's a lot of changes, a lot of things that we didn't predict, a lot of things that we weren't expecting. Um, and I just once again want to say congratulations for making it through another year. I think that God's got some awesome things in store, a little bit challenging. There, There's always challenges, but I think that God wants to do some incredible things in and through his church, in and through his people. And so we are excited, along with the challenges that show up for 2022, um, we're also excited for what God is going to do. So I just want to say a prayer, and then we'll jump into this content. So Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. I thank you for each and every single person. Uh, Lord, I pray that this content would wouldn't feel super awkward or super weird for both me and for those that are viewing, whether they're viewing us live and in person, whether they're viewing this um, online or if they're in the drive-in. Lord, I pray that you would just be glorified in everything that we say and do, Lord. Um, as we look to 2022, Lord, as we've just kind of uh, started this brand new year, year, Lord, we pray that you would just be glorified, that you wouldn't necessarily keep us from difficulty, but that you would just show yourself in that difficulty. Lord, uh, as we think about the different things that happen around our nation, the different um, uh, weather patterns, the different challenges, the different things that show up, Lord, for the things that will happen this year that we're not even thinking about, uh, Lord, would you just be glorified? Would you draw men and women unto you, Lord? We thank you for that. And would you just be glorified? Be with us as we uh, start week one of our road trip series. And we thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> uh, like I said, we are going to jump in to this. I do want to remind you that if you are interested in joining us, you may have just heard this in the announcements, but if you want to join us for communion, we are going to be taking communion towards the end of this message. So if you want to get your, your cracker and your, your juice, you can do that like I have here, um, but we will be doing that towards the end of the message. And uh, today, like I said, we are starting a brand new series that I'm pretty excited for. Um, I'm going to try and keep this message brief just because I know that the video format can be a little bit challenging to keep your attention. Hopefully not but we'll jump into that. But we are super excited to start what will be about an eight-week 
um, a small, uh, an eight-week study or sub-series is what we're calling it, a sub-series as we continue through the book of Luke. So we have been in the book of Luke for the last 18 months or so, maybe even a little bit more than that. Um, well, we are going to continue to work through the book of Luke through all the way to the end, hopefully. Um, and then what we will do is kind of, as we're going through that, we're doing sub-series to help you remember where we're at so that you can kind of understand it. Basically, in road trip, what we're basically doing is we're looking at Jesus's journey to Jerusalem. Basically, in Luke chapter 9, 51, we see that Luke writes, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, talking about Jesus, he set his face to Jerusalem. And so basically, what we've been seeing from chapter 9 all the way through 18 and then on, we've seen Jesus kind of on this road trip where he's going from town to town. He's traveling, he's ministering, he's talking about what the kingdom of God is like. And basically what he's doing is he's also sharing with his disciples and encouraging them and teaching them what it means to be disciples and to live into the kingdom of God. So that's why we're doing a series called Road Trip. Basically, it, it culminates to where Jesus shows up to Jerusalem. Um, and when Jesus shows up to Jerusalem, he has got the purpose and the idea of the cross on his mind. And I, I don't know about you, but for some of you, maybe you really like road trips. Maybe you enjoy jumping in the car with your family and friends or whoever it is, and you love the the kind of the idea of journeying to a destination. Or you could be more like me, and I am not a huge fan of road trips. Like I, I am, uh, I, I've spent a lot of time traveling on the road, mostly in 15 passenger vans, as I was in a Bible college program that we traveled up and down the East Coast. Um, I've done youth ministry for about 15 years, um, and a lot of my traveling was done in 15 passenger vans, smelly 15 passenger vans. And so I am not a huge fan of the road trip. And I know that there's that saying that says it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. Well, generally speaking, when I'm on a road trip, I don't care for the journey. I just want to get to the destination. And it's funny as we look at that, like there's always a kind of a sigh of relief for me as I get to the destination. It's like, okay, now we're here to do whatever it is that we're going to do. As Jesus was traveling and preparing and kind of going through his road trip, there wasn't some ultimate fun experience that was waiting for him as he finished his road trip, as he makes his way to Jerusalem, Jerusalem is ultimately where he dies on a cross, where he suffers one of the worst deaths imaginable. And he does that to fulfill the purpose of why he came. And so it's interesting as we talk and we look about look at this road trip that Jesus is on, there is not this glorious ending where Jesus is super excited and, and uh, super happy. I think that it ultimately was for good, but it was a challenging road that he was on. It was more of uh, a death march leading to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, not just this fun, exciting time where it ends with a lot of ex- celebration and excitement. Why there is celebration ultimately because of what Christ has done. It was a difficult journey and a difficult road that he would be on. And so Jesus is kind of traveling, like I said, <coughs> excuse me for that. Uh, he's traveling from town to town. Um, he's ministering. He's talking about the gospel. And uh, he is continuing uh, to do that. Um, And so we've been to chapter 18. We're in chapter 18 right now. Um, There's a lot of things that have happened in chapter 18. Jesus is talking to his disciples kind of in the beginning about prayer, having persistence in prayer. Um, He teaches uh, the religious people then about prayer and receiving God's free gift of righteousness. Um, Like children, we kind of covered that. And now he's going to continue to contrast and compare different groups of people um, who 
miss, who can ultimately miss or do ultimately miss the kingdom of God. And so we're going to be looking at that. There's a little bit of a contrast and comparison between what we know as the rich young ruler and then the disciples. We're going to see that this week. And then also, even as we get into the next few weeks, you'll see a comparison between the disciples um, and this rich young ruler. And also ultimately we'll get to Zacchaeus, who was willing to give up all that he had. And so we'll see that in the next few weeks. I apologize for the coughing. Uh, It is what it is. We're going to jump into the text now. It's found in Luke chapter 18. We're going to be going through 18, 18 through 30. And so we're going to jump into this. And it says this. It says, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so uh, what we see is that this story is actually covered in three of the four different Gospels. So both Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke, all three cover this. And the headings on those uh, are referred to as the uh, rich young ruler. This is a a pretty popular, I'll say it's a well-known passage that we're actually looking at. Luke doesn't specifically refer to him as this uh, young ruler. Maybe he doesn't want to imply kind of there's any immaturity there because Luke's kind of more focused on the attitude, which is detrimental, whether he was young or old. Luke's kind of focused on his attitude in what he does. But here's this rich young ruler that in Matthew or Mark, I forget which one it is. If you want to look those up, it's in Matthew 19 verses 16 through 30. And then also in Mark 17 through 10, 17 through 31. And so rich young ruler, he's here. Excuse me. It says, uh, the man is described as a ruler, which means that he was most likely a prince or a magistrate of some sort. Since no Roman, Roman ruler would address teacher uh, Jesus as a teacher or master, it's assumed that this man was a Jewish ruler of a local synagogue. A- and Luke, again, he's probably more interested in not referring to him as the, the rich young ruler. He's just more focused on here's this man that is coming to Jesus and... In, in either Matthew or Mark, it says that this man comes and he kneels before Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, right away, one of the things that I want you to see and to understand is that this rich young ruler is approaching Jesus differently than what the Pharisees have been. If you've been with us for any amount of time, the Pharisees, the, the Sadducees, the religious elite, they're kind of more like the opponents against Jesus. And as they come to them, they come with a lot of pride, with a lot of arrogance, wanting to argue and debate, to want to try and trap Jesus in what he says. But here is this young man who is coming to Jesus and at least kind of in a civic way showing some type of respect, maybe even submissions by kneeling before Jesus, by kind of addressing him as good. But it's interesting, his response here, Jesus kind of pushes back on this idea of good. And so he says, good teacher, maybe this was a form of flattery where uh, this, this rich young ruler was hopefully looking to gain some favor as he calls him good. Um, And so what we see is that his question, though, has implications um, that are attached to it, namely that he could actually do something to inherit eternal life, that he could earn eternal life. And if you've been with us even a couple weeks ago, we've been talking about this idea of, of God's free gift. It's not something that can be earned. It wasn't works righteousness where you do the right thing, you say the right thing, you don't do the wrong thing, and then therefore, poof, you get to make it into heaven. And the religious elite would have been hung up on the idea of the law. 
And, and the law being specifically the Ten Commandments, but, but there was many more laws that were kind of attached to that. And then on top of that, there was laws that were added on top of the laws that were added on top of those laws by men so that they wouldn't break the original. But the law is referring to kind of these Ten Commandments. And this rich young ruler is wanting to see what he can do to earn salvation. And again, I'm trying to hopefully paint a picture of you that this man, not in pride and in arrogance, but in still missing it, is, is actually coming to Jesus, asking what he can do. And so the rich young ruler was making the same mistake as the religious elite were doing. He viewed eternal life as something that he could achieve or earn through certain good works. Um, also, as he refers to Jesus as good teacher, it's possible that he's, uh, this ruler is using flattery to Jesus uh, for a favorable audience by calling Jesus good. He's most likely uh, Jewish, and he's probably a devout uh, follower of the law, as we'll see in just a little bit. The issue of goodness raises the question of honoring God, though. And so verse 19 says this. Jesus, in response to this, says, Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. And this is really an important framing of what Jesus is actually doing, because not only is he kind of talking about this idea of theology, how the Jews perceived God, they believed that people could be good, yes, but in comparison to God, only God was truly good. So he's framing this picture of going, hey, 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 it's not about flattery. Like if, if that was kind of the uh, attempt or the approach, Jesus is going, nope, that flattery doesn't get you anywhere. And remember, only God is truly good. And so he's framing this in such a way that we're going to see later on that makes a big, significant impact on what Jesus is going to tell this person, uh, this rich young ruler. So others could be good, but compared to God, no one was, was truly good. So to greet somebody in this form, while it may be flattering, it wouldn't have fit their understanding of who God was. So it could have been a flippant attempt at flattery, but Jesus forced the man to think about it. On some level, this man had to think about it as Jesus goes, why do you call me good? Maybe it was even a comment that this rich young ruler didn't even really think about. But Jesus kind of goes, why do you call me good? And then he reframes it. Uh, what's interesting, too, is that Jesus doesn't actually deny that he's good. What we know from being able to study God's word, kind of having a bigger picture and an understanding, what we know is that Jesus was the son of God. So if anybody would be considered good, Jesus would fit that title right? Like Jesus was good. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrifice as the perfect sacrifice. And so what we understand is that God had sent his son, Jesus, and the three, God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy Spirit existed all in one, this idea of Trinity, three in one. So what's interesting is that Jesus of all people could and should have been referred to as good because he was God. Only God is good, and Jesus is a part of God. So in this way, this could have even been, it wasn't because what we see is that he missed it, and Jesus is about to explain this. But it's interesting to think that this could have even been a um, kind of an, a, a, an understanding of who God truly was, of who Jesus actually was, and how he came to save, and that it could have been a profession of his divinity, but it wasn't. And so God doesn't actually, Jesus doesn't actually deny his own goodness, but what he does, he reframes this question and says, why do you call me good? So continuing on in verse 20, it says this. So Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And then in verse 20, it says, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You should not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And so Jesus 
goes right from why do you call me good and then into this explanation of following the law. This would have been a traditional kind of Jewish answer that you need to be observant and aware of the law and live out the law. But it's interesting because as Jesus is traveling and going from town to town, it's almost like this is backwards to what Jesus is doing because he's preaching and teaching that salvation comes from him and him alone. So it's almost puzzling that Jesus would say, hey, if you want to receive salvation, what you have to do is follow the law. But Jesus is actually making a point to this person who is religiously devoted, who has got things kind of all together, that if you look at this person, um, it's, it's interesting because this guy would have been kind of the, like, the cream of the crop, right? Like, so as we kind of tease this out a little bit, think about this person who's coming up to Jesus. This person is rich. He has some type of civic responsibility or some type of, uh, of leadership role within the community. And so he's, he's got money. He's got position and influence. He's got power. Um, he's young, maybe even reading between the lines here. He's probably good looking because he's young. He's probably got some uh, charm to him. Like he's pretty charismatic. Um, and he probably comes from a great family, right? Like, so as you look at this person, I wonder if the disciples are thinking like, man, here, this guy is the complete package. In fact, I wondered if the disciples were even going like, man, I would be friends with this guy. Like who doesn't want a rich influential, powerful friend by their side. Like this guy appears and he's devoted, like he's devoted to following what we're going to see in just a moment. He's devoted to following what the, the Jewish people, what the Jewish law would have called for people that wanted to be close to God. Like he's doing all of the right things. So this guy looks like the complete package, right? He looks like he's got it all together, but Jesus is making a point that the law couldn't save anyone that only Jesus could. And it's interesting that these commandments that Jesus actually says, don't commit adultery, don't murder, uh, don't steal, don't give false testimony, honor your, your mother and father. Basically what he's doing is that he is, um, uh, he's instructing him to keep the seventh, the sixth, the eighth, the ninth, and the fifth commandment. And each of those commandments refer to a person's relationship, like a man's relationship to another person, to another man or to another woman. The first four commandments actually refer to a person's or pertain to a person's relationship with God. And then the last one also is one that talks about not coveting. And so it kind of balances the relationship of others as well. And so what you see is that Jesus is kind of referring to these these six different commandments that would have been relatively easy to see if someone followed. Um, because these are more behavior, their relationship from person to person. So as he says, I followed these things, somebody could even object and say, actually, uh, you stole from me. And actually, you murdered this person over here. Like it could have been something that they didn't do, that there would have been a testimony or possibly a testimony of somebody doing. But Jesus is saying, like in those relationships... In those man-to-man relationships, these are the things that you have to follow. But again, the commandment that Jesus lists were kept, and they were kept by most well-raised Jewish people. But Jesus is, again, making the point. He's reframing it. He's going, it's not about you earning salvation by your good works. It's not about the law. The law can't save anyone. The law only points you to the fact that you can't save yourself. But Jesus had come for the fulfillment of the law. Let me continue on with this verse. It says this. <coughs> 1821, the, the man responds back to Jesus. So Jesus gives him the list of six different things that are his relationship regarding other people. And, and then the man says, all of these I have kept 
since I was a boy. And again, it probably is not too far of a stretch. He probably was able to keep these commandments because if he was a rich Jewish person, it wouldn't have been too difficult as he grows up in the religion and the understanding of what the law says. He's got parents that maybe point him in that direction. It's not um, something that is impossible to believe that maybe he did keep these commandments. But again, Jesus is is reassuring, or he's he's reframing the question and showing that it's not by the law that you can be saved. The point is, is that even if a person could keep all of these commandments perfectly, which this man claimed to have done, there would still be a lack of assurance of salvation. And so, again, the young man is obviously religious and sincere in his pursuit of righteousness since he was a boy, probably around the age of 13. Um, he is, he is uh, able to follow these laws, and he is doing that. Uh, the problem was is that he considered himself to be faultless concerning the law, and this was the point that Jesus was challenging. So verse 22 says this. It says, When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. In the book of Mark, in the gospel of Mark, as he is retelling this, this story here, Mark says in, verse, uh, in chapter 10, verse 21, and says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, And then Jesus heard this. He said to him, You lack one thing. Sell everything. And what I want you to do is, again, see this man differently. We've seen some great examples of pride, right? Like where the Pharisees and and the religious elite, where they miss it because they are prideful and they don't want to receive and they don't want to accept. This isn't the case for this young rich ruler. It's not pride and arrogance. It's not like the religious elite, but he still misses it thinking that it's something that he could earn. The man says that he's kept all of these things. So Jesus focuses on the man's relationship to his material possessions. He's alluding to the last commandment to not to cover and his relationship to God uh, with the first four commandments that Jesus also had mentioned. Jesus perceives an area of weakness, uh, an area of weakness, his wealth. And so it is with, uh, so, so, So said, it is with the money itself that was standing in the way of his reaching eternal life. And so Jesus tells him to sell everything he owns, kind of sell it all and then follow me. Um, and at that, he's, he's sad and he's disappointed. And, and it was, the emphasis is not so much on selling everything. The emphasis is on following. It, Jesus was actually kind of using this as a test to see where this man's motives, where his, his desires actually laid. Because if it was about following the law and doing whatever it took to receive eternal life, then as Jesus points out this one thing that he lacks and he's missing, as he points that out, man, this person, if he's truly dedicated and devoted to God, this person should have seen that and wanted to pursue what God had for him and receive eternal life. But in this, kind of Jesus, like a skillful surgeon, shows and reveals what the man actually is missing and what he lacks. And again, the emphasis was not so much on selling as it was following. Jesus's words to this rich young man were a test of his faith and his willingness to obey. The man thought that he needed to do more, and Jesus explained that there was plenty more to do, that he could do but not in order to obtain eternal life. Instead, he needed an attitude adjustment towards his wealth. Only then could he submit humbly to the lordship of Jesus.
And, and here's kind of an application I think that's important for us. Jesus does not ask all believers to sell everything that they have. And Jesus here is about to go into a discord about money and wealth and how difficult it is for somebody to enter into the kingdom of heaven that has wealth. But he's not asking everyone to sell all that they have. But he does ask every person, however, to get rid of anything that has become more important than God. What I think is so almost startling or scary is that this man who had it all together, this man that looked really good on the outside, that was, again, kind of the complete package, he didn't even realize that he was doing what he was doing, that his top priority wasn't God, but his top priority was actually his wealth and his security and his trust, which was not placed in God. And Jesus reveals that. And so uh, if your basis for security for you personally has shifted from God to what you own, you may need to get rid of those possessions. And, and I think that that is something that is challenging. And, and this is a passage, can, as we continue on, that is challenging for us as believers. It should cause concern for us to evaluate how we live our life. Because again, the Pharisees missed it because of pride and arrogance. But here, this rich young ruler misses it not because of pride and arrogance, but because of priorities. He missed his priorities, and he didn't, didn't even maybe realize his priorities were out of place until Jesus shows and reveals it to him. Verse 23 says this, When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. The ruler was not prepared to give up all that he had and to follow Jesus. Love of wealth had crowded out the love of God and the central value of this man's life. And again, this is where it's so alarming because he didn't even recognize it. He didn't even see that the love of wealth had crowded out his, his love and his central goal of living for Jesus. The man's refusal to, to, to not give his stuff up showed that he did not truly love his neighbor as himself. And this was how Jesus summed up all of the law and all the prophets, that you would love God, love your heart, and then that you would love others. And so he, it showed that he truly didn't love his neighbor as himself and that he put himself and his wealth rather than God at the center of his affection. If the man had loved God and other people more than he did his property, he would have been willing to give up his wealth to the service of God and man. But this was not the case. He had made an idol of his wealth, and he loved it more than God. With surgical precision, Jesus exposes the greed in this man's heart, greed that the man didn't even suspect that he had. Jesus' statement that only God is good is proved in this young man's response to Jesus' command. And uh, this is, again, I, I want to kind of park here and talk just a little bit about wealth and idolatry. And I know that that's not a super fun and exciting topic, so bear with me. We're going to work through this, but I think that this is kind of our practical application for us. Uh, this rich man struggled with the same thing that the Pharisees did in the sense that he wanted to earn salvation, but he couldn't earn it. It was, an, it was nothing that he did that would make him right before God. But again, instead of being lost in pride and arrogance, he's lost in, uh, he's lost in this, his priorities. He's not understanding and realizing. Uh, the Pharisee and the religious elite missed it due to pride and refusing to see Jesus as the way to this salvation. This man was eager and devoted to God. He had everything going for him, but he still missed it. And here's kind of what I, I think is that, honestly, this is probably a picture of many of us in the modern day era, in the modern day church. Basically, as we come to Jesus, 
we are not probably looking like the Pharisees and the religious elite where we are concerned that we're missing Jesus with pride and arrogance. We, we have some understanding and knowledge of who God is, but where we miss it is thinking that we have got Jesus sitting in the number one priority of our life, but it's actually other things that crowd Jesus out. It seems like it's so simple and so easy for things to just kind of get in the way, for things to kind of, where where God is number one, but then all of a sudden we've got to do this or that, and then life kind of has its way of taking us a different direction, and then the next thing we know, Jesus isn't the top priority or the top focus in our life. And I think that this story, probably more than any, any in the New Testament, is one that should startle us and one that should... Um, we should look at and be disappointed at because here's this man that misses it, not because of pride and arrogance, but because his priorities are not, not accurate where they are. We think that we have things squared away in our life. Our priorities are straight. We think that we've placed God in the number one position, but the reality is, is that other things have crowded Jesus out for the most important thing in our life. Our actions and our attitude reveals it, even when we don't see it. Our actions and our attitude reveal it even when we don't see it. And and again, Jesus is going to continue as we look through the rest of these verses. Jesus is going to start a discord on money and wealth. Um, And and in in Luke 16, it was actually the parables week 8. We talked about money and, and how it's a competition in our heart. That Jesus is really looking for that number one space, that number one spot, that number one priority. And money and stuff has a way of crowding out what is most important, and our, us placing our trust in them. And the Bible talks a lot about finances. And arguably, it's the, it's the most talked about topic. But it, even in that, understanding the context that the reason it's talked about so much is because I would argue that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is talked about far more than this topic of, of finances and wealth and money. But it's Jesus talks about money so much in reference to the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom uh, of God because money is what gets our attention. Jesus uses that which creates tension in us and he uses what can be a stumbling block for so many to get our attention and to focus on what is the top priority. And basically, as we look through this, this is uh, you can go back to parables week eight if you're interested in listening to that. Um, trying not to repeat some of that same content, um, and like I said, trying to keep this a little bit briefer than what a normal message is. Um, in Matthew chapter six, Jesus is talking about laying up treasures in heaven, and there's a couple scripture verses. It's Matthew six twenty one, Matthew six twenty four, and then also the same as Matthew six twenty four is also Luke sixteen thirteen, and this is what it says. Jesus, again, talking about laying up treasures in heaven, he says, for where your your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think that this is so important and so critical for us is that we understand this truth that Jesus was teaching. Where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. It's just a fact of life. If you are wanting to see what your greatest value and your greatest possession and your greatest treasure is, look at where your money goes. Follow the money trail, if you will, and you'll be able to see where your treasure actually is. And that's from Jesus himself. And then, in, again, Matthew 6, 24, as well as Luke 16, 13, same verse, two different places, but it reads the same exact way. It says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. And... <coughs> 
And Jesus is telling this rich young ruler that nothing else can be in competition for the top priority in a disciple's life. And for this young man, wealth was his top priority. For us, I think that we need to do an evaluation of our own life as well. Is wealth our top priority? Or is success or fame or whatever it is, what is our top priority? Because if it's not Jesus, then we're missing it. And that is exactly what this young rich ruler was experiencing. He was missing what God had for him. Not because he was lost in pride and arrogance, but because he didn't make the first things in life the first things in life. He made his relationship with Jesus secondary and third to wealth and possessions and finances. And money has a way of doing that. Uh, I already said this, but if you want to know where your priority lies, look at where you spend your money. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. You cannot serve God in money. This man missed it, not because of pride and arrogance, but because of priorities. Priorities that he didn't even know were there. This passage should concern us to uh, earnestly evaluate where our faith, trust, and devotion to God actually lies. What Jesus is telling is that there's nothing else that can be in top uh, priority for his life. And again, I said that there's, there's probably not a sadder story in Scripture about this man who, who hears this, who has great wealth, and he turns away, and he doesn't follow and do what God has called him to do. And again, I think that idolatry is something that's really critical. And if I had more time, I want to jump into that. Um, idolatry is something that the Israelites, God's chosen people, had struggled with for years. And I think it's something that we today as believers struggle with as well. Now, it looks different. In the Old Testament, as you read through it, that was an idol. It was a false god that was made out of wood or stone or iron. It was a false kind of deity that they would pray to and they would kind of give uh, sacrifices to or like all type of crazy things. And I would argue that today we struggle with idolatry as well, except it doesn't look like wooden images. It doesn't look like stone images or iron images. What we struggle with is maybe values or things that just have a way of crowding out. Our idols are convenience. Our idols are comfort. Our, our idols are uh, whatever it is, finances, wealth. Like you, There's so many different things that can become an idol for us that we don't like to talk about because we don't want to expose the difficulty. But I think that this passage really challenges us to look at and to evaluate if there's any idols in our lives. Who will you choose to be a servant of? Will you, who will be the master of you? Do you have money or does money have you? Does your stuff own you or do you own it? Do you serve things or do things serve you? Does your money and your possessions, uh, do you use your money and your possessions in a way to be generous to others and therefore honor God? Continuing on verse 24, it says this, and I'll try and speed this up. It says, verse 24, Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? And many people at this time would have heard this and been puzzled because the rich really weren't disadvantaged in any way, right? Like the rich were what everybody aspired to have and to be and to do. But here Jesus is saying, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? He's making a point that it's hard, even in the next few verses, even that it's impossible in, for men to do that on their own. And so uh, this man offered discipleship, chooses to walk away and to not give his, his possessions away. And verse 25 says this, Jesus continues, says, how hard is it for somebody to enter the kingdom of God that is rich? He said, indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle rather than uh, the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. 
And there has been a lot of conversation over the years about this particular verse. And there's a lot of temptation for us to simplify this, to say, oh, well, the camels, uh, uh, the eye of the needle was a, uh, was a place in Jerusalem and they probably travelers. So it's not impossible. But no, Jesus was making the point that it was impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of head, uh, heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle for someone who is rich than for uh, someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus here is using hyperbole, right? Like, so this isn't to be taken seriously. However, what God is about, what Jesus is about to say in the next few verses is, is very interesting because it kind of puts an understanding on it. In, in the next few verses, Jesus says, what is impossible for God is, or what is impossible for men is possible with God. So he's kind of already given that. But here, Jesus is actually using some comedy some hyperbole of going, hey, it's more easy for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And this would have been a a well-known Jewish proverb to describe the difficulty that faced the rich. Uh, The Greek refers to a sewing needle, and Jesus is using hyperbole to get his point. Here, Jesus is actually being funny. He's kind of telling a joke. I, I don't know. I really wish that I could see and understand how he was doing this, but he's telling a joke using hyperbole. And uh, I heard somebody say this, that there's two ways that you can see where your your value is. One, look at where you spend your money. The other thing is to look at what you don't find funny, what you don't find comical. So here Jesus is using a little bit of humor to kind of get his point across with a well-known Jewish kind of um, proverb that is impossible. And so Jesus is doing that, but he's also making the point. He's having a little bit of fun, but he's also making the point that with man it may be impossible, but with God all things are possible. And I had, uh, if I was with you today, I actually would have had a picture, uh, two pictures. One was the world's largest knitting needles, which is kind of strange to me. I think they're like 14 feet long and they actually do knit, um, which is bizarre. I think the person that made them might need uh, a different hobby or maybe they just need a hobby, but whatever, there's that. But then also the world's largest, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, uh, the world's largest actual sewing needle is eight foot and one inches long. It was by a a couple people or several people from India. um, And it was back in 2019 and it made 15 stitches with the needle on two pieces of black fabric as required required by the guidelines. So it's just kind of a lighthearted thing to get you to think and to see that this is how Jesus is using this. He's using comedy. He's using hyperbole. and But he's also making the point. So continuing on, because I want to wrap up and get to communion. Verse 26 says, Those who heard him asked, who then can be saved? This would have been startling. Like, if it's impossible, like... it. The idea is that it's not hard or difficult. The idea is that it's impossible for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. So then who can be saved? The, again, the disciples are probably looking. Here's this perfect candidate to be discipled. But if he can't be saved, who then can be? And so it's challenging for them. And Jesus says in verse 27, Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. See, salvation was impossible for men to do on their own. But, like all things, it was possible for God. Salvation comes through him, and we must fix our eyes and our faith in God. He alone can do the impossible. He alone can bring salvation. People cannot save themselves. No matter how much power, authority, influence that they have, salvation comes from God alone. Both the rich and poor can be saved, and human impossibilities are divine possibilities. Verse 28, and this is the contrast you see between this rich young ruler who can't give up everything he has. Verse 28, Peter said to him, we have left all that we have to follow you. 
Peter is looking for validation. He's looking um, in contrast. The disciples have left everything to follow Jesus. So Peter is probably a little bit like, Jesus, does that apply to us? Because we've left everything. And Jesus reassures him in verses 29 and 30 as we come to a close. It says, truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. And so Jesus just reassures them and says, hey, you've given up. I see that you've given up and you've sacrificed and you've laid down, but you will receive in this age and in the age to come so much more. We call ourselves CLC family and I really do hope and pray that you feel the connection, that you feel valued and you feel loved, that we are are, uh, a community that God has brought us and knit us together. And when you sacrifice for the kingdom of heaven, when you give up you ha- all that you have, Jesus promises that there will be reward both in this life and in the next. And so today, I just want to kind of close um, in communion. And, and I'll say a, a, a prayer in just a moment as we kind of pray over that. But communion is a way that we get to um, partake of what Jesus has done. We get to remember his death on a cross. We do that by partaking of bread and partaking uh, of juice. And symbolically, it represents Christ's body and it represents Christ's blood. And so I want to encourage you, if you're home or in person or in the drive-in, we're going to do that right now. And I want to read to you a scripture verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 29. And we'll kind of pray in between there and we'll break it up. It says this, for, and this is Paul speaking, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So if you would, go ahead and take that bread. I know that if you're opening those containers, they're a little bit challenging. But I just want to say a prayer for for this bread, but you can continue to open that. But Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your body that was broken. I thank you that by it, Lord, by the stripes on your back, that we, we can find healing, that we can find salvation. Lord, I thank you that you are a good God, that you love us and that you care for us and that your mission and your purpose was to make it to Jerusalem so that you could die on a cross, ultimately so that we could be in right standing in relationship with you. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for your body that was broken. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and partake of that bread. Verse 25 of that same passage says, In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So you can go ahead and prepare your juice or your drink, and I'll say a quick prayer over that. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much uh, for your blood that was shed, Lord, that you gave us the opportunity to be in right standing, Lord. I'm just so thankful for you. Lord, would you just be glorified in everything that we say and do? Lord, I thank you that we get to learn from uh, people like this rich young ruler, Lord God. I pray that we would just not live our lives in such a way that we would miss what you have for us, that you would be our top priority, and that we would be mindful of every day and everything that we do um, by what you've done on the cross. Lord, I thank you so much for, uh, for your blood that was shed on Calvary. We thank you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may partake of the drink. Well, the last thing that we want to do is just go ahead and invite you to stand with us as we sing our last song. We hope that you have a blessed week. Thank you so much for coming. Please stand with us as we sing our final song.
far from your waist Forgive us, O oh Lord We've sinned against your name
beautiful guys thank you so much and thanks for hanging in there with uh, a little bit of a, a curveball thrown to us um, appreciate that want to remind you again that there's no connect on Wednesday this Wednesday there's no student ministry on this Wednesday but we hope to be back um, there are some celebrate recovery small groups meeting um, so if you're in one of those that will still be happening but um, you know as I think of this purification that we go through and and um, Sometimes the, the, the tough that can come with a new year, right, that doesn't seem like it's going to be much better than the last year. Oftentimes we, uh, we just want to get caught up in whatever feels comfortable, whatever feels normal, whatever feels uh, right, whatever distracts us. And um, I don't know if you choose a word for your next year, but I was looking through someone's and she said, I picked the word whatever. Um, if you grew up in the 90s like me, that made me chuckle because I was like, whatever. Um, and here's why. She said, because I want it to remind me, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Whatever you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And so I wish that peace for you today. I hope that when you're like, whatever, that is what your heart rests on. And uh, so we're excited to start a new year with you, and we'll see you back again next week. Have a great day. See
Born in 